This podcast has been brought to you with the support of Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. With a Wise account, you can send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Whether you're traveling through Asia, freelancing in France, or buying that dream property in Oz, Wise is the easy way to connect all your finances internationally. You can even send money home to mum in minutes. Join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com. Kia ora, I'm Damien Venuto. It's July 26th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. The two victims of the Auckland construction site shooting have been named. Solomono Toototo and Tupuga Sipileano were killed when Matu Reed showed up to 1 Queen Street armed with a shotgun and took aim. As the police continue their investigation and other victims recover, questions are being asked about how Reed was able to obtain a gun and able to leave the house despite being on home detention. Later, NZ Herald senior crime reporter Jared Savage joins us to discuss New Zealand's ongoing gun control efforts. But first, on the front page today, open justice reporter and former probation officer Rick Stevens joins us to discuss if anyone did anything wrong in ruling Reed was low risk. Rick, you previously worked as a probation officer. Can you briefly describe what goes into that role? So a probation officer manages people in the criminal justice system who are not actually in prison, so they might be sentenced to supervision or home detention or community detention, or they might be on parole. And the job is basically to manage the risks that they might pose because of what they have done, but also to get them into rehabilitation and hopefully on a better track. When we look at the recent shooting incident that happened in Auckland, Matu Reed was deemed low risk of reoffending. Based on your experience as a probation officer, how did that happen? Right, okay. Well, first of all, I've got to say this is just my opinion. I've never met the man. I don't know anybody who's managed him. And I don't know any more information than the average listener will because I'm just looking up stuff in the public domain. But he didn't really have much of a history before this. He had a very nasty domestic violence incident where he strangled a woman. And that's you know, not to be diminished. But before then, he just had a, an assault conviction. And so all of the measures that they used to try and assess risk would have been looking at a very comparatively short criminal history. And he wouldn't have been considered anything more than low risk, I think, on that basis. Many critics have asked whether the police maybe made a mistake in not viewing him as high risk given his history of domestic violence. What would be your take on that? Well, I I don't think the police necessarily would have had eyes on him because he did something, they prosecuted him, he went into the criminal justice system. He will only come back to the police's attention if he does something out of the ordinary, which unfortunately he did in this case and and something that was, was terrible. Given the circumstances of this case, do you think that he received a relatively light sentence of home detention given that he did strangle his partner and that was what led to his initial conviction? Well, I think, you know, judges get a bad rap because people see them as being lenient, but they're actually bound by the Sentencing Act 2002, which Parliament has come up with, that says that they have to impose the least restrictive sentence in the circumstances. And so if somebody is on what they call a short sentence of imprisonment, if if they're likely to go to prison for less than two years, the judges have to consider home detention. 
and it would be a sort of extraordinary reason for them not to be given home detention in that stage. And unfortunately, as bad as domestic violence is, you know, that offence would have fitted within that short sentence of imprisonment parameter. Yeah, we have had a few people on this podcast suggest that judges very rarely make mistakes. They're sticking by the letter of the law and they're applying the principles that exist. If we perhaps don't agree with what's happened, it comes down to the principles of the law and what the rules that the judges essentially followed, right? Yeah, well, I think if somebody's got a problem with what judges are doing, I'd say go and read the Sentencing Act and see what that says. But also, on top of that, you've got all the case law since where judges have imposed sentences. And when anybody goes in front of a judge for sentencing, the defence lawyer and the and the Crown lawyer or the police prosecutor will say to the judge, well, there's this case here and that's what was imposed on these and how do we compare this circumstance with that circumstance? I mean, judges don't make this up. So I spent quite a few years here observing district courts. And what's really interesting to me about those observations is judges don't really make mistakes here. It's an interesting paradox that I felt I was seeing where the judges are kind of perfectly reasoned and consistent and they're making the right decisions or whatever, but those decisions are reflecting the social world that they're operating in. And this is why you kind of get perhaps differential outcomes in sentencing or why a lot of sentencing studies find ongoing discrimination. Can you talk to us a little bit about the ROC, ROI system that's used? Where does that come from and how is it used? So Rockroy is a, is a risk assessment and it's a t- statistical tool. If you think about how insurance companies have actuarial programs that assess risk when they're writing policies, it's a similar sort of thing here, but they look at all the interactions that somebody has with the criminal justice system, how old they are, how many convictions they are, even the length between convictions. And they do some clever maths in the background that says this is what this person's risk is of reoffending within five years. And over time, there's been a, quite a high correlation between the predictive number and the actual rate. So if somebody comes out with a Rockroy of 0.5, that means they've got a 50% chance of, of reoffending within the next five years. And the history of the thing is telling us that's reasonably accurate. So it's actually using data analytics and the history of other offenders to make a prediction on what another offender might do. Yes, it will zero in on the particular person that's being assessed, but it will take in data from all sorts of things and it's clever maths that's way above my head. Are there any other models that we use to measure the risk posed by an offender? Uh, Yes, probation officers, they have something called the DRAOR, which is Dynamic Risk Assessment on Reentry. And every time a probation officer will meet with somebody, they will sit down and, and they will look through a whole range of categories, things like employment, their mood on the day, interrelationships with other people, dependency issues, whatever, and they will come up with a scoring system and they'll come up with some numbers and that type of thing which will allow them to look at risk in the moment. And the value of that is that when you see people over time, you can see how things are changing and whether or not their risk might be going up or, in fact, if it's, if it's actually going down and things are getting better for somebody. In a column that you wrote for The Herald, you said that you would not have identified any unusual risk in the case of Matur Reid. How hard is a probation officer's job when it comes to making calls like that? Well, I think you can only go by the training and the tools that you're using. And this was just my personal opinion. Of course. I kind of looked at it and said, well, based on what I know and and what I would have done in that circumstance is what I have done anything different. And I don't think so. And I think because Reid's actions on that day, that terrible, terrible tragedy, were kind of off the scale for somebody with his, what they call an offending profile. He was a danger to women. 
and that was been shown through his domestic violence, but there was nothing that I could see that suggested he would be a, a danger to the general public or to his workmates. So in any decisions informed by data, he was acting well outside the remit of that data? Absolutely right, yes. I don't think anybody could have predicted it unless he'd actually said something, and there's no evidence that he did. Rick, where do we go from here? Will there be a review of the sentencing? And if so, what will that review look into? Well, I think that there will be certainly be an incident report to see how Ree was managed and see what lessons that could come out of that. But in any given day, across the country, probation officers are looking after 30,000 people or thereabouts. And, you know, the systems that are there have been in there a long time. I think we have to see this as being still an anomaly, in my opinion, that it's something that happened it's dreadful that it did happen, but I don't think we can say that, well, the system should have stopped it because it was just so off the scale, as I say. Yeah, we can't create systems for anomalies. You can create systems for what normally happens, right? Yes, that's right. And I think that, again, in my opinion, I think that people who are working in this field generally manage risk quite well. And the reason is because if they manage risk quite well and things don't happen, you don't get to see that. It doesn't make the news. Thanks for joining us, Rick. If you're enjoying this episode of The Front Page, make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And for more crime and justice news, analysis and podcasts, head to nzherald.co.nz. The other big question hanging over this incident is how an individual like Matu Reed was able to attain the firearm used to unleash chaos on Aotearoa's largest city. This is despite changes to our gun laws in the aftermath of the Christchurch terrorist attack and despite the launch of a new gun registry to keep track of firearms across New Zealand. Here to help us understand how this one slipped through the cracks, we're joined by Herald investigative reporter Jared Savage. Jared, many are under the impression that our gun laws became much stricter after the Christchurch shooting. So what actually changed? There was a huge raft of, of law changes following the, the terrorist attack down in Christchurch. Many of them are quite technical, but we can boil it right down to the main one, which was essentially the vast, vast majority of semi-automatic rifles and shotguns were outlawed pretty much overnight. And that led to a huge government buyback of firearms from licensed firearms owners. About sixty to 70,000 of these weapons, which cost the taxpayer about $100 million. Earlier this year, we also saw the government launch a new gun registry to keep track of firearms. How does that work and what has the effect of that been? Just if we can explain a little bit the background to it. Previously, way back prior to the 1980s, we had a firearms registry in New Zealand that was broken down into geographical regions. Police in one district couldn't match up the details from one district to the next. It was There were errors in it. It was impossible to, to keep on top of. So back in the early 80s, when the Arms Act came into force, I think 1984, they did away with any sort of registry. Anyone who wanted a firearm needed to get a licence, and that was how the police and the government planned to keep track of who could and couldn't own firearms. So we've had a 40-year period where we haven't had a, a national firearms registry, and one has been bought in this year, just last month, and that was off the back of the law changes following the terrorist attack in, in Christchurch. What it is is basically a digital database. Every licensed firearms owner needs to now register their weapons individually, just in the same way that 
all your cars are, are registered to your name, and that keeps track of weapons. Because what's been happening is, whilst anyone who wants a gun can get a license, while those records are kept, we've had instances of people buying many, many firearms, and no one has any idea if they're linked to a certain person or an address or how many have been on-sold. And so the firearms registry has been brought in to basically keep track of firearms with really the goal of making sure that they don't fall into criminal hands down the line once they've been purchased. That horrific attack started a journey to reform our firearms and regulations. The first step in that journey was to ban all military-style semi-automatic weapons in New Zealand. And this step today, establishing a firearms registry to Taripuriki, is the final step in that journey. Until today, we have not been able to have a complete picture of where all legal firearms are in New Zealand. Joe, despite these changes and the fact that he didn't even have a firearms license, Mutter Reed, who was involved in the recent Auckland shooting, still managed to get his hands on a shotgun. How was that possible in a country that's meant to be so strict on guns? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and it's one that I imagine a huge part of the police investigation into the shootings last week will focus on that. We do know the police commissioner has confirmed that the firearm itself was not a banned shotgun. The, the pump-action shotgun was not one of the ones that fell within the, the law change. But, of course, the shooter did not have a licence, so how he got his hands on that gun will be of great interest to the police and to the wider public. This is what I think has probably happened here, is that many years prior to the registry, anyone with a licensed firearm could buy a gun. They could buy as many guns as they want, and no one had any idea who had them. So... Retailers of guns have to keep records, so those records were, were held and kept, and, and the police could use those to track firearm sales. However, if I sold them to somebody else, under the law at the time, I didn't need to um, keep any records of that. All I had to say was, oh, yeah, I cited their licence and, and it was fine. Oh, who was that person? Well, I don't know, can't remember their name, didn't need to keep any details. So there's a huge loophole in terms of firearm security. And that's why we have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of firearms that are available to fall into the wrong hands. And I suspect that's what we saw last week with the shooting. Somehow, Matu Reed has procured a firearm from somebody who has either lent it to him or sold it to him at some point in the future. You know, organised criminals used to do this all the time prior to the registry coming in. They're basically using, it's called they're called straw buyers, a licensed firearm owner buys a gun, and then sells or supplies it to someone who doesn't have a license. This is exactly why the firearms registry was brought into place, so that guns can be tracked, because up until now, it's just been a free-for-all. Recently, you also reported that the headhunters bought 3D printers to make guns from scratch. How worrying is that development in Aotearoa? It's definitely something to keep an eye on. The idea of 3D guns being printed by 3D printers, I should say, is not new. It's been worn for a little while. Relatively rare in New Zealand, to be fair. They are expensive to buy, these these 3D printers. And the firearms that are manufactured from them are not overly reliable or as robust as a, a normal firearm. What I would expect to see 
is that as the firearms registry comes into force and builds up a better picture of who owns what firearms in this country, I expect that organised criminal groups will find other avenues to get guns. So whether that is, you know, the straw buyer or retail diversion, in theory, will will dry up over time, but they'll look for other avenues. And whether or not that's going back to stealing firearms from registered owners and sort of a, you know, a made-to-order kind of burglary or 3D printers or smuggling or importing firearms from overseas, I think those are the sorts of things that we will see more of in New Zealand. We haven't really seen a whole heap of that so far because there hasn't been a need to because it's been so easy to get guns. 3D printed guns will be something that is likely to become more prevalent as we go forward. Jarrett, looking at the current state of guns across New Zealand and the threat of this new technology, do you think that there's any way the country will be able to get a handle on the gun problem across New Zealand? I think there's always going to be a way for people to to get their hands on firearms. I guess the the ban on semi-automatics and the and the bringing in of the registry in theory should make it harder for criminals to get their hands on firearms. We've spoken about you know 3D printing, smuggling, um, thefts from from licensed firearm owners. Those will increase. Whether we'll ever truly get a handle on it will probably take decades to come to fruition. Like there's this because of how loose it's been in the past, we have no idea as to how many firearms are out there. There's a huge pool that are already in the hands of criminals or kind of because we're unaware of where they are, like so-called grey market guns, they could fall into criminal hands. It's going to take a long time for the registry and the ban to sort of take effect, but you've got to start from somewhere. You can't just let it carry on as it was. So over time, in theory, it should get harder for criminals to get their hands on guns. Of course, it's going to take a lot of time and effort by the police to make sure that they're actually following up with firearms owners and and checking to make sure that they've only got the firearms that are registered against their name and so on. So it's going to take a long time and a lot of concentrated effort, but it should be harder for firearms to get in the hands of someone like Machu Reed and then commit the crimes that they did. So that's the goal. Thanks for joining us, Jared. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson and Paddy Fox with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.